2: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what
0: about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams.
2: And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world.
0: We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld
2: Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not.
3: Available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's begin with a very old story that you probably know. There once lived a man named Orpheus, who was a gifted musician and storyteller. He fell in love with a beautiful young woman named Eurydice, and they were married. Shortly after, Eurydice was bitten by a snake while walking in the forest. Overcome with grief, Orpheus convinced the gods to let him descend into the underworld to recover his lost love. He played such a haunting, beautiful song that Hades was moved to compassion and agreed that Eurydice could return with him to the land of the living. There was a catch, however. If Orpheus looked back at his wife as they made their ascent, Eurydice would be trapped forever in the underworld, and Orpheus, unable to hear his wife's footsteps behind him and fearing that Hades had tricked him, looked back and doomed his wife forever, and Orpheus begs to be killed, so he can join Eurydice. Jane's journey is a lot like that of Orpheus, a journey through death into life, to recover something lost to her. And for a long time, she had one foot in death, because in a way she had company. And if she suffered, she would be able to bear her guilt for surviving. Last episode, we listened to the tapes from 1989, when Dr. Philpin hypnotized a young Jane Baroski. What must that have felt like to Jane, now 56, to see her younger self still trapped in the underworld? Jane called me after she watched this hypnosis video for the first time. Hi, Jen. How you doing? So... You watched the videos last night? I did. How are you feeling about it?
1: It was, um... <laughs> wow.
3: You are listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is the last episode of season one. Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the whole series, sign up for our subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content.
1: Obviously, I had never seen them before. They were, what, 36 years old. There was one particular one that I watched a couple of times. And, I, you know, obviously I was listening to see, you know, how descriptive I was getting, and, and uh, which amazed me. And I was listening to what I had to say. I mean, it was, it was, uh, some of the details that I had forgotten over the years before. It's mind-boggling. How could I forget those details over the years? Why did I, you know, not, not remember them? As soon as I heard these details, like, oh, my God, I remember that happening. So many things that just brought back so much memory that it was like, I, I can remember that happening in detail. I can remember, for some reason, I always thought I was in the car, When he pulled in, when in actuality, I wasn't. I was standing in front of my car. And now I remember him pulling in. I remember him shutting his lights off. I remember him turning his interior light on. You know, I can specifically remember all that stuff now. Another thing, (laughs) which I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) When we got out of the car... I remember him dropping the knife. I, I totally can visualize that. I totally remember seeing that. He dropped the knife. I don't remember how I fell to the ground or how he got me to the ground by the, by the front fender of my car, but that is when he was choking me. He had me on the ground, and he was choking me with two hands. I remember that.
3: Did you lose consciousness? Like, how long was it?
1: I don't think it was very long because I had kicked him. I had kicked him as hard as I could off me. I don't know if I got him in the groin or what, but it definitely got his attention and it got him off me. So I don't remember being choked for very long at all. I know that. And then I remember him. I remember him saying, wait till I get that knife. And then I
3: yeah. wonder if, um, like, his... his- plan and intention until it changed was not to use the knife at all in that parking lot but maybe he was choking you to get you to lose consciousness so he could take you elsewhere.
1: Yeah, that that was my thought too. Yeah. I don't think he had any intentions on stabbing me in that parking lot. I think he had the knife to threaten me, to scare me but his main intention was for me to go with him.
3: Oh, gosh. I'm so glad you fought, Jean.
1: <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, the more I think about it, how did I? How did I? You know? and But then I think, I'm going to get emotional now. It's okay. How did I fight any differently than they did? You know? Yeah. Yeah. All those girls, now did I fight any differently
3: than they did. But, but gosh, like, what, what a, this is a strange thing to say, but what a blessing that you're here now.
1: I know. And I'm grateful. I really am. I am so grateful to be alive. But I wish they were alive, too. I'm sorry.
3: That's Okay an emotional thing. I I can't imagine what feelings it's stirring up to see those tapes after all this time.
1: But then uh, you know, still and and I felt this way over the years, I'm just um, I'm kind of angry with myself that I wasn't I wasn't more detail orientated. I I didn't pay attention to more of the details. (laughs) I wish I had Looked at the plate. better. I wish I had looked at the front plate if there was a front plate on the on the vehicle. You know, I, I wish I could have been uh, more attentive to more details uh, of him and of you know exactly what he was wearing and and the plate and and all that stuff. I just you know. I've been angry with myself for a lot of years about that. And, and I, for a while, I was good and, and realized, you know, I had gone through something really traumatic. So, you know, and I was only 22. Why would I, why would I possibly look at details like that? But it still, it still sticks with me. Why didn't I, you know, I wish I had, I wish I had.
3: Yeah, I can understand that feeling. I think on the other side of it, I don't think there's a person on earth who would blame you (laughs) for not remembering more. I mean, there's a bunch of physiological reasons why you wouldn't where you're just like super focused on surviving and the details kind of blur on the edges. Not to mention the time and the trauma. Yeah, that's
1: true. I was totally focused on How am I getting myself out of that situation at that
3: time? Yeah, of course. And it must be so frustrating now, uh, hoping to (laughs) remember something that would identify him. Like, I I can't imagine. But it's not your fault. I know, but
1: it's so frustrating.
3: There was another thing that stuck out to Jane as she watched her 22-year-old self in this video. It stuck out even more prominently than the details of her attack.
1: So I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, it was almost like an out-of-body, like, I'm watching this person. here, this, this this girl is, she's 22 years old. She just became a new mom. And she's describing in detail one of the most horrific events in her life. And what caught me was, I saw no emotion.
3: It's striking to me that Jane feels so separate from her younger self. Even here, she refers to herself in the third person. But then, did you catch what she said? Jane said she just became a new mom. Remember, Jane was seven months pregnant when she was attacked. And I bet you've been wondering about what happened to that unborn child.
2: I I believe it's because I was pregnant with her I survived. I wanted her to survive that much. I think I was most concerned about her more than I was about myself. I think she wanted to survive. So she gave me the strength to survive. I ended up carrying her for another two months after my attack. And uh, when I went into labor, I ended up having some medical difficulties with her. And so they had to do emergency C-section.
4: I am Jessica. I am the daughter of Jane Borowski.
0: Are you
3: still nervous? <laughs> it's awkward, right? Yeah. It's awkward to be recorded. Yeah.
4: This is the uh, second time. I did it with mom once and I'm,
3: I hate my voice. It's a thing. It's like hard to listen to your own voice. Yes.
4: Like me hearing this after. <laughs>
3: Can't do it. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or if your mom has said this to you before, but she credits her survival to you.
4: I have heard her say that many, many times.
3: And how, like, how does that make you feel?
4: Um Overwhelming to know that we both survived.
3: Because of this attack, how have you felt the effects of that? <sighs>
4: A lot of ways. I um, have a disability. My childhood, I was bullied. Kids never got to know me. They always saw me as different. Nobody wanted to know me for me. But now I don't let my um, disability define who I am. That's okay. great.
3: If you don't mind me asking, you don't have to answer this, but. What disability do you
4: have? palsy, Mild.
3: OK. What are the manifestations of that? Like, what do you have to deal with?
4: My voice, my speech, um, coordination sometimes. Um, in school, I had an IEP. I had one on one help. I had speech until I was in high school.
2: you know, because of my attack, it has affected her life a great deal. I mean, she's, um, she has uh, mild cerebral palsy which affects her speech and her motor skills. But I, she's, she's amazing. She is, uh, she's so strong. Sometimes I underestimate her. Like when she struggled through school, she's not just academically but also socially. She was bullied in school because she was different and she had challenges. I can remember we had a a meeting with all her teachers and, and with her special ed teacher, her senior year of high school. This was probably the most proudest I've ever been in my life of her. We had a meeting and they said, well, you haven't earned enough credits to graduate so we're gonna give you a certificate. You can still go up on stage with your class, but we're gonna give you a certificate that you completed 12 years of schooling. And she looked at them and she's like, bullshit, I've been in this hellhole for 12 years. I am gonna graduate with a high school diploma. And she spent her whole senior year busting her butt to earn every single credit she needed to get her high school diploma. And she walked up on stage and she got her high school diploma. No. <laughs> oh, I still cry when I talk about it. I had never been so proud of her.
3: I feel like it would be really hard to watch my mother go through, I'm to call it a healing process, yeah. but it took a long time, right?
4: Yes, it had. Yeah, it took her many, many years.
0: And what's it like watching her go to it?
4: It's tough, but I will always support her. We will do this together, you know. It's also making me heal, you know. Like, it's okay if I'm different. It's taken me a while to be this open. I used to be in the background because I'm like, uh-huh.
3: But you have a story too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That deserves to be told.
4: Yeah, and how I feel about certain things, like the cops.
3: Ooh, let's get into that. How do you think your mother's case has been handled?
4: Not very well. The day that she told me that she went up there to find out about evidence, I get really deep into this. Yeah, sure. Okay. A um. Came back to her and said, "They have no evidence, and any of her evidence. You know what? How did that happen? She did, uh, that should have never happened. I want to know why, for my mom,
3: and for me." About four or five years ago, a detective from the cold case unit contacted Jane and explained that they were in the process of excluding known fingerprints on her evidence. He asked her if she would come down to the Concord State Police barracks and get fingerprinted again. Jane, of course, agreed, and he said he would be in touch to schedule it. So she waited, and waited. He never got in touch with her again. So a while later, Jane marched down to Concord to demand some answers. And it was during this visit that someone in that office said this.
2: So I I was always under the impression there was some kind of DNA up in Concord in the evidence because they scraped my fingernails right after my attack while I was in the hospital. All of a sudden the detective said, "Um, we have no DNA to test. So I was kind of thinking, well, maybe they didn't find any DNA underneath my fingernails. So I actually went up there and I said, I'd like to see all the evidence that you have. What exactly do you have for evidence in in my case? The detective left the room. He really didn't even know who I was. Kind of had to look me up on the computer. So um, he came back 45 minutes later. I was left in this room all by myself. He came back and um, he said, "Um, your evidence is gone. I said, what do you mean my evidence is gone? He's like, there's nothing there. Okay, there was a windshield, (laughs) broken windshield, my sneakers that I just bought, my T-shirt that was cut off me, fingerprints and DNA underneath my fingernails. And it's all gone, all the evidence is gone. And um, he's like, yep, it's gone and I don't have anything else more to say to you and asked me to leave.
3: We heard Maura Murray's sister Julie talking about the relationship to hope in a missing persons case. I can't help but think of Jane's relationship to hope in her own case. I imagine it's been quite a roller coaster. But hearing that your evidence is lost is the same as hearing your hope is lost. We make allowances, of course, for lack of development in cases. Some just go cold but what we cannot excuse is law enforcement telling Jane her evidence is lost, whether it was true or not. Because of this, and other factors, Jane and I have kind of made ourselves a bit of a nuisance to the New Hampshire State Police and Attorney General. In my conversation with the former Associate AG, Jeffrey Strelzen, I asked for a status update on Jane's case. He replied with the following, quote, Since the Borosky case is not our office's case, I cannot answer your question about evidence in that case. I'm not sure if you meant her case was not under the purview of the Attorney General, or it's just not with his particular department. In any case, this is confusing to me because major crime investigations are overseen by the New Hampshire Attorney General. Jane's attack qualifies as an attempted murder or felonious assault, which are considered to be major crimes. And two, Jane's case was openly speculated to have been connected to those murders in Claremont, which we know the state police and attorney general oversee. So what changed? I asked Mr. Strelzen why Jane's case was sent elsewhere, and where it was sent. Strelzen did not elaborate, and instead said, quote, As to the Baroski case, that would be prosecuted by the county attorney's office in the county where the incident occurred. End quote. So I called the Cheshire County District Attorney. The person I spoke with at their office said they remembered Jane's case and told me that their office doesn't do investigations. Unless there was a suspect charged with her attack, they wouldn't be involved. They suggested her case would be with the Attorney General. And then for good measure, I called the Swansea Police Department. I spoke with somebody in the office, and she was very kind and inquired over Jane's well-being she remembered her case. When I asked if they were investigating her case, she said, oh no, the Borowski case was high profile, and the state police immediately took that case. Around the same time that I was making these inquiries, Jane received a call from one Detective Sergeant Michael McLaughlin with the New Hampshire State Police Major Crimes Unit. And I can't really express how elated Jane was after that call. She felt for so long that her case had been swept under the rug, that no one cared, and here comes Detective Sergeant McLaughlin offering to buy her a coffee, telling her he cares. McLaughlin assured Jane that he was personally invested in her case, and that her evidence had been found in storage after the police had moved barracks. Not only that, but he's working on a fresh lead in Jane's case. Jane was over the moon. She called me right after with the news. And her words came out so fast I could barely understand. Then she burst into tears. Well, I too am genuinely happy that this detective gave Jane her hope back. I can't help but be skeptical about the timing. I looked up when the state police moved barracks. It was many, many years ago. Unless he was suggesting a different barrack move that I couldn't find record of. So when were they going to tell Jane that her evidence was not lost? So do I think they're actually working on Jane's case? Do I think there's an actual lead? I honestly don't know. But based on some later developments, I do actually think there's some movement. I followed up with Detective Sergeant McLaughlin, and while he declined to speak on the record, he hinted that some of Jane's evidence is being evaluated for DNA. On the lost evidence, Here's what he had to say, quote, I don't believe that any evidence was ever missing, although I would suggest that an evidence label from 1989 was likely misinterpreted 30 years later. Good grief. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression about Detective Sergeant McLaughlin. He was very, very kind to Jane on the phone and kind to me in an email. And he did say that the victim should always come first. I applaud that attitude, and I hope it continues. But when I asked Detective Sergeant McLaughlin if he was the lead investigator on Jane's case, he said no. He was merely working on it. Then, he suggested that Jane's case would be under the purview of the Attorney General. I feel like we've been here before. At the time of this recording, neither Jane nor I know who's the lead investigator on her case. And this is important for several reasons. For one, chain of command must be established if any real progress is to be made. Two, if someone contacts Jane with information, who does she send them to? Has the cold case unit even seen the information she's sent in over the last decades? And three, it's important that Jane, a victim, know for her own spirit and sense of well-being that the police still care that they're still looking, that they don't want this violent man to get away with what he did to her, and perhaps to many other women. Detective Sergeant McLaughlin told Jane he'd love to sit down with her over coffee and discuss her case. That was just before Thanksgiving of 2022. It's been almost nine months, and he's yet to contact her again. So Detective Sergeant McLaughlin, I know you're a good guy. You've got your heart in the right place. And you're a good cop. If you're listening, call Jane.
2: On your happy
0: price, Priceline.
3: Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. In 1988,
2: at a lonely roadside service center, a young woman courageously fought off a brutal unknown assailant. A surprise attack carried all the earmarks of a serial killing. Now authorities have constructed a chilling psychological portrait of a man who may be responsible for the murders of seven women.
3: Jane's episode on Unsolved Mysteries aired on October 2nd, 1991. After that, a lot of tips came in, often to Jane herself.
2: Well, before the internet, people would come knocking on my door. Oh, I I think it's my brother, or I think it's a classmate. I've done research on this case for three years and I think I've figured it out and I, I think it's my neighbor or, um, and, and these are people from across the country and I've gotten letters. And um, then when, of course, internet hit the waves and Facebook, I have had several, like a lot of, lot of people message me With tip and send me pictures of who they think it is. I can't give you his name right now, but I want you to see this picture. Is it him? And and I've gotten so many of those. And you know, since the Lynn Marie Cardi thing, I just um, I don't respond to them anymore. I can't. I, I I just I I direct them to the cold case unit up in Concord, and you know, tell them I can't help you. Uh, they can help you. And most of them, they, they always, most of them respond they're like, oh, I've already talked to them or I've already sent stuff up to them, but I'm not hearing back. And it's like, I, I don't know what to tell you, but there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to look at a picture again and say, yep, that's him. And it's not my job. It's not my job to investigate that. That is the authorities' job to do that. It pisses me off that these people feel that they have to come to me because they're not getting responses that they want from the the authorities. It's like, uh, you know, I, I have to be hopeful that they're doing their jobs.
3: And then not long after Unsolved Mysteries aired, Jane received a chilling letter in the mail.
2: This was right after Unsolved Mysteries aired. So obviously, whoever this letter is referencing saw Unsolved Mysteries. And this letter pretty much informed me that um, they know who my attacker was, that I needed to stop immediate, the media attention, that it was making him extremely angry. And he also referenced a bus stop. And at that time I was bringing my kids down to a bus stop. Or the letter referenced a bus stop. And I I was like, kind of shook up about it because I was actually bringing my kids to a bus stop. And that was like, whoa, okay. Is this somebody that knows him or is this actually him that's writing me the letter Let me know that Hating like the media attention.
3: What was the language like? Was it sophisticated language? Was it. It
2: was just scattered. It was like one sentence made sense. That sentence didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I'm sure there was a message in there somewhere. And then that another sentence made somewhat sense. And then signed Jane.
3: That's the most bizarre part to me that it was signed with your name.
2: That was yeah freaked me out freaked me out and it was mailed not to dennis's parents house i wasn't living there anymore we had bought a house on the other side of hinsdale and it was mailed to that address they knew i had moved they knew i what my address was and there was no internet back then Let's make that clear. So they couldn't punch my name on a on a computer and find out where I was living. So how did they know where I was living?
3: Were you listed in a phone book at all?
2: No, because the phone was in Dennis's name. Oh. They could have looked up Dennis. So I called um, the detectives up in Concord. And I said, I got this letter. And he's like, read it to me. So I read it to him. The detective said, put it in a paper bag immediately. Don't touch it anymore. So I did that, and the very next day, two police officers, state police officers, came and and picked it up.
3: Okay. So what happened to that letter?
2: Well, I got a call a few weeks after the state police picked up the letter, and they told me that they couldn't find any fingerprints whatsoever on the letter. So whoever wrote the letter, obviously work loves i was under the impression that it was put into evidence
3: while we know that this letter should be in jane's case file she hasn't gotten confirmation if it's still in there
4: You've worked through
1: all of these cases, but there's one you have yet to look at. Heidi Martin's murder, and I think that's one that you have to take a look at.
3: Even though Dr. Philpin left me this voicemail about Heidi Martin's case, I kind of stalled on the research. For an ambitious project like Dark Valley, where there's at least eight cases we have to work through, I made a decision early on that I was going to limit the scope of the story to those cases that had already been linked together by the police task force in the 80s. I had to give these core cases due consideration before I allowed myself to branch out to those cases where the victim was too far out of the upper valley, outside the timeline. Or the details of the crime scene didn't really map on to those of the core cases. Heidi Martin has never been connected to the Valley Killer cases by law enforcement. In fact, a man had actually stood trial for her murder and was acquitted. What I now understand is that Dr. Philpin was subtly urging me toward Heidi with a great deal of purpose. I just had to trust this thing that's building in the background And certainly growing bigger than my own investigative efforts. And as for Heidi Martin, she might just solve them all. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. It was noon on May 20th, 1984. It was a balmy 70 degrees. Spring had swept through the small, rural town of Heartland, Vermont. The snows had melted, and the landscape was erupting in green buds, yellow trout lilies, and blue wild columbine. Heidi Martin was just 16 years old and a track star at Heartland High School. She was pretty serious about her running, and she was constantly trying to improve her times. She had a regular three-mile jogging loop around town. So that day, Heidi put on a pair of light gray jogging pants and a blue t-shirt and set off from her family's log cabin home on State Route 5, where she lived with her mother, Linda, father, Barry, and brothers, Aaron and Jason. Heidi also had a half-sister named April, but April lived with her mom. Outside her door, Heidi took a right on State Route 5 and headed south. A neighbor girl who often hung out with the Martins told me she saw Heidi jog by that day as she played in her front lawn. Heidi continued up Route 5 to Three Corners, which consists of a general store, one stoplight, and a couple residences. Then she passed by Heartland Cemetery before turning left on Martinsville Road. On any regular day, Heidi would have run down the winding dirt road and over the Martins Mill-covered bridge, and then up past Heartland Elementary School to loop back home. But somewhere on her journey this day, someone stopped her. By about 3pm, her mother Linda had returned from an early shift at the hotel she worked at in White River Junction. Both she and her husband, Barry, grew worried that Heidi had not returned home yet. The family called around to friends of Heidi to see if any of them knew where she was, but no one had seen her. Heidi would never make it home. Early the next morning on May 21st, search parties decided to concentrate on the heavily wooded ravine behind Heartland Elementary School, known by locals as the Martinsville Woods. At 8.30am, a a smaller search party discovered Heidi's clothed body in a shallow stream at the base of this ravine beside a tall hemlock tree. Her feet were on the muddy bank, and her body lay on its side, perpendicular to the flow of the stream. Her face was submerged in water, and her grey jogging pants were muddy up to the knees. She had been attacked and killed right behind Heartland Elementary. When authorities removed her body, the ravine was too steep, so they had to take her up through the back of the school. Heidi's little brother Jason was in class that day, and I can't imagine what was going through his child's mind as his teacher lowered the shades on the windows facing the Martinsville woods. In a later autopsy by Vermont's medical examiner, Eleanor McQuillan, Heidi was found to have died from internal bleeding and shock due to two deep stab wounds to her chest. Her aorta had been punctured, causing massive blood loss, which then pulled into her chest cavity. Heidi had also sustained two additional stab wounds to her right abdomen and flank. These were shallower wounds and have been described as, quote, hesitation stabs. And horrifically, McQuillan also found scrapes and bruises on Heidi's lower lip, pebbles and silt in her airway, but not much water. This suggests that Heidi's killer held her head underwater against the stream bed as he stabbed her to death. The shallow stabs to her abdomen and flank didn't correspond to holes in her t shirt. In addition, Heidi's bra was found floating downstream. This led the medical examiner to conclude that Heidi's shirt had been pulled, quote, up or off when the two stabs happened, and then redressed after the fact. There was no evidence of sexual assault. There were also a few other injuries to her body that told the story of how hard Heidi fought. There were two bruises on her lower right arm, one bruise on her upper right arm, as if someone had squeezed her hard. There was also deep bruising down to the bone on her chest, which suggests she was hit with a blunt object, perhaps a fist. There were also scratches and bruises on her side, which indicate she had been dragged. No weapon had been recovered from the crime scene, nor any other trace of the killer, with the exception of two hairs that didn't match Heidi's. One hair was located on Heidi's stomach, and the other on her foot. Some officials believe that the placement of these hairs are from her killer carrying her at some point. I picture a kind of fireman's carry, with Heidi's stomach over his shoulder and her feet near his head. Heidi's murder happened only 10 days before another teenager, Bernice Courdemois, was abducted and murdered just 20 minutes north over the border in Claremont. Three years later, in 1987, Barbara Agnew's body turned up less than three miles away From Heidi's murder site on Advent Hill Road in Heartland, Vermont. It's both mystifying and frustrating that the Vermont and New Hampshire task force didn't include Heidi Martin's murder in those cases connected to the Valley Killer. This was almost certainly due to two things. For one, the stab patterns on Heidi didn't necessarily match the stab patterns on other victims, she didn't have cuts to her neck or her midsection as we know happened with Eva Morse, Linda Moore, Barbara Agnew, and Jane Baroski. And the second reason is that the Vermont State Police arrested a man the day Heidi's body was found. Two state policemen picked up a 21-year-old man who had hitchhiked down from his one-room apartment in Four Corners, Heartland, to visit some friends. His name was Delbert Tallman, and he was pretty well known to police, due to a few scrapes of the law in the past. Vermont State Police Detectives Ted and Mike LeClaire arrested Delbert the evening Heidi's body was recovered, and exacted a confession from him after only a few hours of interrogation. Here's the thing, though. Delbert has a low IQ. He's developmentally delayed, and has a rather impressionable nature. His alleged confession was never taped or recorded in any way by Vermont State Police, and Delbert's defense later argued that he was coerced into this confession. Due to these issues and more brought up at trial, Delbert Tallman was acquitted of Heidi Martin's murder. Vermont State Police and the state's attorney, Bill Boss, maintained that they had gotten their guy. They officially closed the Heidi Martin investigation, unless, they said, we receive new information. There is so much more to this story, and I'll share all of it in due time. I'm going to put it plainly, however. It's my belief, based on interviews with his defense attorney, people close to the investigation, and a ton of research, that Delbert Tallman did not murder Heidi Martin, but he may have witnessed it. Since 1984, Delbert was arrested in Florida for failing to register as a sex offender, as well as a few misdemeanor charges, and then extradited back to Vermont. The last I've heard is that Delbert is kept out of trouble, and he's living in a group home in Vermont. In the meantime, I began as I usually do with these cases. I reached out to the family. I desperately wanted to know more about Heidi, so I did a quick online search and it seems Heidi's half-sister, April, is the most vocal about her case. Based on some posts April made, she too is convinced Delbert Tallman wasn't her sister's killer. And she believes Heidi was a victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer. So I sent April an email and waited. Her reply came the next week and it was very kind, but she said she wouldn't be available for at least a month. I got the sense that April was unsure of me, or the whole podcast thing, or both. So I gave her some space, and we left it like that. One summer evening, Jane invited me to her house to have pizza with her family. When I pulled up, Jane waved me around to the basement. They have an awesome full bar down there, replete with NASCAR posters and light up beer signs on the wall. Here's a voice memo I recorded from that evening sure. as I was leaving Jane's house. But There's two floors, and it seems like they mostly hang out in the basement because uh, once we entered, uh, her husband Dennis was kind of lounged on this big couch watching Ice Road trucking. He was a little standoffish when I first met him, but we ate some pizza. Jane told me I had to try the chicken Alfredo broccoli pizza from their local <laughs> And almost through a beer. beer, I heard a car pull into the driveway. And a few moments later, footsteps across the first floor of their home. Then, a little girl with brown hair and Jane's bright blue eyes came bounding down the stairs. gave Jessica a hug and met Cheyenne. And she she's eight years old, and she had her hair braided in two fishtails. And she was wearing a Chaos and Kindness t-shirt, carrying a plastic egg for some reason. <laughs> And she came right up to me and smiled. Extremely social and sweet and kind. And when Cheyenne was there, Dennis kind of lit up and everybody was laughing and joking, and we drank a beer.
2: My my little Cheyenne, she's amazing. She is the most sweetest and funniest and most compassionate little girl I ever met in my life. So when Jessica went in to have Cheyenne, I was able to go in, and I think she was able to give me the biggest gift I've ever could have received, and that was uh, watching my granddaughter be born. Wow. She had, and I'm so grateful, so grateful for this, because she deserved this. Jessica had the perfect pregnancy and she had the perfect delivery like she she just did everything right she felt great she had no stress or drama or anything in her life I was and still I am truly thankful for that because mine was anything but and I was able to experience that with her. You know, She lived, of course, she lives with me. So I was able to watch her develop throughout her whole pregnancy.
3: It's not irony per se, but it's like poetic justice. Yes. That Jessica had such a perfect pregnancy and delivery. Where, yeah. Whereas you didn't. I didn't. Because of this person. Yes kind of full circle.
2: Yeah, definitely.
3: I asked if it was okay if I mic'd up Cheyenne, and I got Jane and Jessica's permission. Cheyenne listened intently as I explained how to turn on her receiver, and how to clip the mic onto the collar of her t-shirt. She wants to be a YouTuber when she grows up, and I tried explaining that podcasting is a fun job too, but I don't think she's convinced. Ooh, it's kind of dark outside, huh? yeah are you afraid of the dark no that's good i used to yeah yeah cheyenne can you tell me your whole name and how old you are charlie parker and i'm eight you're eight and who's your mommy jessica and who's your grammy jane (laughs) so when people listen to this they're not going to be able to see anything so you have to tell them what you're looking at. What are we looking at? Trees. Trees? Where are we? Out back Am I on? Are we at your house? <laughs> Do you like your house? What's your favorite thing about your house? Champagne. How is it? Really fun. She's gonna show me a cool thing in her room, if that's okay. Oh! Oh, yeah! yeah. <laughs> what you Do you have it picked
4: up? Your gum?
3: A little bit. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know what you're
3: walking into. <laughs> oh, wow. It's all pink. Yeah. I just gonna show you
4: this, which is my American Goldal kitchen set. <gasps> It has sounds. It's like different sounds.
3: That's on the stove? Yeah. Like something's boiling? Yeah, and then like ice cube sounds. Cheyenne? <laughs> yeah? Do you think you're a happy kid? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for showing me your room. Yeah, I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> we had I a great you interview. <laughs> you did a great
3: interview. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah, I <laughs> Do You
0: had fun. It.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A few months later, I got an email back from April, Heidi Martin's sister, so we scheduled a Zoom call, and my intent was really just to ask her about Heidi, what she was like, what she liked to do, who her friends were, but for some reason... I felt nervous to speak with April. When I opened the Zoom meeting, April was sitting there, some emotion clearly working itself across her face. Then she said this. Okay, don't record. I have something to tell you. What April told me over the next few hours absolutely blew me away. She also said she had a meeting coming up with the Vermont State Police cold case unit and asked if I would accompany her. And of course, I did. April and I met in White River Junction, Vermont, and in much the same way Jane and I had years before, in a hotel, a slightly nicer one this time. We went to my room and sat down to record.
0: So, um, hello. I'm April Stone, and Heidi is my sister, my older sister.
3: When we scheduled that Zoom and we saw each other's faces... Like, what happened? What was going through your mind?
0: This is going to make me sound really weird and far out there. <laughs> I'm not a hippy-dippy. Just going to, full disclosure, I am so not. I'm actually a very cautious person. Again, the whole um, lifetime of secrets. I don't know what it was, but when I saw you come up, well, let me backtrack. And first say, um, when you contacted me, several months prior wanting to interview me, um, I sort of had already decided like in my mind, fine, I'm going to do the standard interview. I'm going to answer the standard questions, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go in depth with her. I'm not going to share any of the secrets quote unquote that I have uncovered over the years, the evidence that I've gathered, um, because I'm not ready to go public and people that are in journalism and doing podcasts and not all of them are trustworthy and not all of them are there for the right reasons. If you're there to make money off of my sister's death, um, I am not supportive of your endeavor. If you are in it because you absolutely have a platform where you can help me share her information and, and hopefully lead to a conviction someday, I'm all in it. I haven't found many of those people. For some reason, maybe it was because you were never pushy with me about scheduling i know we had to reschedule a couple times you were never pushy you were always very respectful when i saw you you just were the sweetest looking person i was like oh my god but you were kind of like with jane your empathy your professionalism and your kindness immediately showed through Within 20 seconds in my head, I just went polar opposite. And in my head, I was like, I'm doing this now. I'm telling her everything. You know, I have the police um, engaged. I, I will tell you that based off of the information, uh, you know, the police aren't going to be happy with me sharing this, but at this point, again, I don't care, um, anymore because it's not about secrets anymore. It's not about hiding anymore. (sighs) But so through the years, I have reached out to the police many, many times and hinted around at this person's involvement. Um, but I never came out and said anything. I just hinted heavily because, I struggle with the fact that I know this person and Heidi knew this person. And I struggle with, if I'm wrong, then I'm an asshole forever even thinking this. Finally, a couple of years ago, I decided to do a very long presentation where I actually did a PowerPoint presentation. I wanna say it was almost 30 pages long connecting this person, not only to my sister's murder, but to the other murders as well. And ticked off with John Philbin, he had done um, sort of a, what is it called? Like a, a profile of what this person would be, their personality. And I matched up this person's uh, known behaviors and life history with that. I came across another case that has a, another profi- another um, sketch from a witness sketch and that sketch is a mirror image to this person. It was absolutely terrifying and relieving all at once when I saw the sketch because it is a mirror image of this person that I've thought all along. And the investigators of this case believe that it could be connected to the River Valley killings as well.
3: This concludes the first season of Dark Valley, and I know it's quite a cliffhanger to leave you on, but I can't say much about the person April believes is the Connecticut River Valley killer, but everything I've heard so far is incredibly compelling. So compelling, in fact, that I believe the Vermont State Police have focused their investigation on this person. An arrest could happen. Honestly, anything could happen, but for the first time in decades, we actually have hope for change. Since this development, I've connected with an attorney who believes that Jane borowski was not the last victim. That after her, the Valley Killer moved east to Maine. This attorney has worked with Dr. John Philpin to develop a list of potentially connected cases. And I received this list. There are as many as 18 murdered women. For now, I'll be in the trenches with April and Jane, fighting for answers. And I'll bring you with me as we tell the stories of these women. Until next time. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amel. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawl Space Media, Tim Polary and Lance Reinsteiner. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.